We're having a, a most amazing event. I love these, these times. I love the fact that children feel so free. One of the children came up to me this morning and said, are you selling ice creams? I thought that was a little bit cheeky, uh, but I love it. And uh, I love all the various uh, gifts that are on display in terms of the seminar programs and the children's work. We are so well served. And um, when you hear uh, Tim uh, Blaber speaking, uh, it reminds me he's going to take on the director of training role for commission in the future. And he's taking it on from a, a guy that several years ago, uh, when my team said to me, if you could pick anybody in the New Frontiers family to be in charge of training, who would you pick? And I said, there's only one person I'd really pick, but this is a dream, and it's uh, Mick Taylor. And they said, why don't you ask him? I said, well, it will never, ever happen. But by God's grace, uh, Mick and Val said yes. They moved down to Bournemouth. And what I was amazed at wasn't just the quality of the teaching which Citygate and the whole of our training program has enjoyed, but actually the quality of the relationship. Mick and Val walk with huge integrity. They, they, they go through a huge challenges, a bit like we heard from Andrew and Rachel yesterday, and they do it with grace. They're always so positive and encouraging to Heather and I, and I love sitting under his ministry as I know you all do in this room. So we're going to watch a video, and then after this video, Mick is going to come up and serve us. So let's just welcome in and an applause, and we'll watch this video. Thank you, Mick. been as you see me now and the truth is I will not always be as you see me now in fact FaceApp says I might look something like this <laughs> which is um, both funny and slightly disturbing um, I'm clearly at the stage of life when there is more of this life behind me than there is in front of me and uh, I have a friend who's a doctor who said some years ago, by the time you reach the age of 50, you're in the firing line. And um, he was reflecting really something you find in the scripture, that we are encouraged to think about the shortness of life. 
So Psalm 39 says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. And the whole of Psalm 90 is a meditation on the meaning of death, and it includes this prayer. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And this theme is not only in the Old Testament, but in the New. James, the Lord's brother, wrote, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Another friend of mine suggests that some Christians have rewritten Scripture. So instead of saying, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, it reads, for me to live is fun, and to die is a shame. <laughs> now you might be thinking that it's time to change some of my friends. And, but they are simply echoing Scripture and what the saints of old teach us. So Anselm of Canterbury said, nothing is more certain than death, nothing more uncertain than its hour. Did you know that monks often would have in their cell a skull to remind them of this truth? And skeptical thinkers in bygone days used to reflect this advice too. So Montaigne, a French writer and philosopher, said a writer's studio should have a view of the cemetery. It sharpens the mind. <laughs> now, I realize some of you are getting concerned that the um, prospect of finishing full-time employment is tipped me over the edge into the slough of despond, and I don't want to be lonely, so I want you all to join me. For goodness sake, isn't West Point awe and wonder? But here's the thing. Whatever wonders we experience in this life, even this week, supernatural healing, dramatic conversions, powerful deliverance, miraculous provision, nothing, nothing will compare to what we experience when we walk through the door of death, because it is the door to wonder, to the wonder of wonders. The truth is, this life is short, and the best is yet to come. But instead of going through life with our heads up, staring the fact of death in the face like Scripture encourages us to do, often we approach the door heads down, distracting ourselves with activities and things. We avoid solitude and silence so our thoughts don't tend in that direction. And when we do that, we diminish ourselves, we blunt our witness, and we weaken our ability to have compassion for others. It is sobering to consider death, especially your own death but it can have a very powerful, cathartic effect. So the purpose of this seminar is to help you die well and help others to do the same. <laughs> For those who know how to die well, live 
better. Those who know how to die well live better. It's a way to ensure that we value this life more, a way to fill a deeper compassion for others. And such thinking makes every experience, every relationship more poignant, more precious, more vital. And I'm not alone in thinking that today. So Francis Chan, in one of his blogs, wrote this. A wise man thinks about death often. A fool ignores it. And then he pleads, as difficult as it is, we need to be mindful of death. We must make decisions with our day of death in mind. Please, please, please consider spending just 10 minutes today in solitude, meditating on your own funeral. Imagine standing before a God who dwells in unapproachable light. And John Piper reckons when this biblical truth or this biblical theme grips you, it frees you from fear and gives you courage to live the most radical, self-sacrificing life of love. Yet, as I said, so many Christians find death a difficult subject. Hillary, another friend of mine, yes, I have three at least, maybe fewer after this morning. She was a hospital chaplain in a large Miami hospital. And she was disturbed and saddened that more often than she thought would happen, doctors would come to her and say, can you speak to this family of committed Christians whose relative, a committed Christian themselves, is dying, but they are now beyond the help of medical intervention but they are all refusing to talk about end-of-life care. The doctor said, it's as though they are clinging to this life as though this was all there was. I want to expose and deal with some of the issues that can make it difficult for us to consider death, especially our own. And I've identified five issues, and... Um, these can come in a combination, or they might affect, all of them might affect us. But maybe as we go through them, you will realize the issues that you need to deal with, and God wants to help you deal with, starting even now. So we can subconsciously hold the lurking suspicion that if we prepare for death, if we think about our death, that somehow we're making steps towards death. So, did you notice when you took out life insurance or made your will, there was like an undertow of resistance? And that if you've talked about end-of-life care or donating your organs, you think somehow you're gonna get through the door quicker. It's all in place, so now it's going to happen. That's superstition. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's lurking somewhere in some of our hearts, because I know when I was preparing this seminar, I went into a daydream, and at the end of the seminar, I slip off here, break my neck, <laughs> and tomorrow morning, Guy gets up and says, the total of the offering is, and Mick's funeral is on. 
Now, touch wood, that's not going to happen. <laughs> we can be superstitious, and we need to address that. But we also can be puzzled about how we are to think about death. We know we shouldn't be fearful, but if from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny, should we really feel sad? And was Dylan Thomas totally wrong when he encouraged us to rage, rage against the dying of the light? This issue is particularly difficult for charismatics, I think, who believe in the sovereignty of God and are pursuing God for supernatural breakthrough in healing and deliverance and restoration. For too often we have an inadequate appreciation of the continuing effects of the fall and the curse. We know that work is still hard and childbirth is still painful and that we will know physical and mental decline as we age and as we die. But often we don't reflect on those facts enough. In knowing how to respond to death, as in all things, Jesus is our guide. When he finds Martha and Mary deep in grief over the death of their brother, what does he do? He weeps. Jesus wept even though he knows that within minutes he is going to reverse death and Lazarus will come out of the tomb. He does not dismiss the sadness of the sisters. And when we are sad about death, he doesn't dismiss our feelings either. He has felt them and feels them. Jesus is no stoic. He doesn't encourage us to be stoics either. If you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, know, know Jesus is with you, but he doesn't come alongside to cheer you up. He comes alongside to be your companion as you walk the path of mourning. Sadness, though, is not his only reaction. B.B. Warfield, the great reformed scholar, wrote an amazing article called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in it, he examines every reference to the emotions of Jesus that you can find in the Gospels. And when he's finished his detailed examination of this incident, he explains, in inextinguishable fury, it seizes him. Tears of sympathy may be in his eyes, but his soul is held in rage. He advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. When our heartfelt cry is, this is not right, it shouldn't be like that, know that Jesus has felt that and feels that with us. He shares both our sadness at loss and our anger at tragedy, but of course, even that is not all. Warfield continued, not in cold unconcern, 
but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites it on our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for us and with us in our oppression. And under the impulse of these feelings has wrought our redemption. Jesus' response to death is grief, defiant anger, and overwhelming victory. And so we should expect that we will know those things at times in our grief, sadness, anger, but confidence in final, overwhelming victory. The other thing that's a challenge and an issue is change. Don't you find change difficult? You might have thought that six years ago when Guy phoned me and said, would you like to come and work with him and come leave the grind and tower blocks of southeast London and come to the sun, sea, and sand of Bournemouth and the beauty of the new forest and the Purbeck Hills, that, that was an obvious decision to make. And I have to say, of all the decisions we have to make, it's one of the easiest. But even then, I wobbled. There were moments where I, un I was unsettled. If a change like that, such a good change, can cause you difficulties, it's not surprising that the change that will happen when you walk through this door, when you can't take a day return ticket to see what it's really like, that that might unsettle us. That's normal human reaction. But a really real issue with the change is not what happens on the threshold. It's what will happen on the last bit of the lap. I wonder, will I need one of these? Will I need one day one of these? Will I finally be pushed around in one of these? And of course, it's not just the physical decline. but it's the mental and emotional decline. Christians are not immune to dementia. Such changes causes us deep thought. They should do. It's understandable and yet unhelpful to try and avoid considering these uncomfortable issues. But God wants to help us face our fears and provide us with strength and hope. So the Bible tackles the aging process head on. If you're a medic and you have done geriatric uh, care, in your training for that, you probably came across Ecclesiastes chapter 12. You might have never read it in church, but you would have done in that training. Because in that chapter, you have a vivid, impressionistic picture of what can happen at the end of life and as part of the aging process. And I want to read it from uh, the message version because it is much clearer there. It loses some of the power of the original imagery, but it gets the message across very clearly. 
This is what Koheleth writes, honor and enjoy your creator while you're still young, before the years take their toll and your vigor wanes, before your vision dims and the world blurs, and the winter years keep you close to the fire. In old age, your body no longer serves you so well. Muscles slacken, grip weakens, joints stiffen. The shades are pulled down on the world. You cannot come and go at will. Things grind to a halt. The hum of the household fades away. You are wakened now by birdsong. Hikes to the mountains are a thing of the past. Even a stroll down the road has its terrors. Your hair turns apple blossom white, adorning a fragile and impotent matchstick body. Yes, you're well on your way to the eternal rest while your friends make plans for your funeral. The Bible is not afraid to paint life in all its reality, its beauty and its ugliness. There's much to enjoy in our mature years, but declining health in old age is not one of them. There's no avoiding these facts, but faith is not hiding from the reality, it's facing reality in the light of God's promises. And John Piper, who's no spring chicken himself, writes, but we take courage and lay aside our fears in the confidence we have a God who time after time tells his people, do not be afraid. God wants his people to be comforted in the face of death. Do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, though, nor will the flame burn you. Thus says the Lord to his people. And we are told what fortified Christ in the face of his unique death. Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And likewise, because of the joy set before us, we will be able to echo Paul's words. Though our, old, our nature outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed every day, knowing that this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Okay, so I've said some of the issues are superstition, being puzzled about how we should respond, the challenge of change, but there are two more issues I want us to consider. And that is, the first one is we can be confused about what the Bible actually teaches, about how and when certain promises and statements become true or are fulfilled. So we can be confused about how. So for instance, in Hebrews, you read this. Jesus died that by his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now you can be tempted to think 
that if you, you should never feel any anxiety about death, because if you do, aren't you denying what Christ achieved on the cross? And if you're not denying that, at least you're showing yourself to be a completely inferior Christian. When we think like that, we are confusing what Christ has achieved for us and how we get to enjoy it. Then truths like this, instead of filling us with hope and faith, turn around and haunt us and tell us how bad we are. We are then wrongly assuming that freedom from fear should be ours automatically or at least come very easily. But much in the Christian life has to be fought for, although it has been won for us. It's because we're confused about what the theologians call the process of sanctification. How what is true becomes real in us. Now this is where, if you like American football, it comes in handy. American football, the NFL, is, has rules more complicated than cricket and is far more exciting. Now, the, most, the key player in American football is the quarterback, and his job is to distribute the ball to different players on his team. Sometimes he will get the ball, step back, and then launch the ball. It will go 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 yards sometimes, and a fast-running wide receiver will catch it and go into the end zone. Touchdown! It's spectacular, almost in a second. In a moment it is achieved. And you will know, and I know, there are things in my life, issues that I face, that in a moment got dealt with. It seemed easy, it was automatic. And for some of you, if it's not already happened, if you have a crippling fear of death in a moment, in a seminar, in a prayer time, in a moment of worship, in a time when you're with the Lord on your own, he will break in and it will be decisively dealt with. Sometimes it's like the quarterback throwing the touchdown pass. But the other thing the quarterback does is sometimes he will take the ball and hand it off to a running back. His job is much harder. His job is to take the ball down the field while the opposing team, acting like monstrous, monstrous human bulldozers, do everything they can to stop him. Then progress is usually made not in tens of yards, sometimes not even in feet, sometimes only in inches, but progress can be made and is made. Sometimes issues in our life are fought like that. We have spectacular moments by God's grace and in his sovereignty. Other times, we are given the promises of God to hold on to, to cling to tightly, and then in faith determinedly run through all the obstacles, all the doubts, all the arrows that the enemy fires at us, and we make progress bit by bit by bit. For some of us, fear gets dismantled one run at a time, and gradually we make progress. We get confused about how promises are fulfilled. We can get confused about how statements, uh, or when statements, 
are fulfilled. So, Paul writes in Corinthians, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And whenever I read that, I start in my head at least doing the, the alley shuffle. Muhammad Ali, the greatest boxer, heavyweight boxer probably the world has ever known. And I get the picture of which you see numerous times if you've ever watched at YouTube or saw it live, with Muhammad Ali standing over a defeated opponent who's just been landed a knockout blow and he's laying there and Ali looks at him and he's like saying, sucker, you think you could beat me? And then sometimes he would do his shuffle where he sort of goes, I won't do it. We dance around the ring. I am the greatest. I am the greatest. We can get confused when that truth of Scripture will be finally and fully achieved and will be our experience. And we have to change the picture because did you know that that statement is date stamped? Look at what it says about timing. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, then shall come to pass. When is that? That's when Jesus returns, when we get our new bodies. Then we dance on death's grave completely. But till then, Muhammad Ali still gives us a picture. His most famous fight of all was the rumble in the jungle. He had been barred from boxing for three and a half years. He had gradually got back to the place where he could challenge for the world championship. He was going to fight George Foreman, who was younger, stronger, and more powerful. Most commentators were convinced not only would he be defeated, but he would be destroyed in the ring. And for seven rounds, it looks like that might happen. He was pummeled by George Foreman. At times, he got out a jab. At other times, he was on the ropes. Sometimes, he managed to skip around. But as he was being pummeled round after round, if you were close enough to the ring, you could hear him say this. That all you got? You got nothing more, George? I think you could, I thought you could hit hard. That it? You were going to lose as he's being hit. That's the picture for us. The picture is we know final victory. It's not that death cannot lay its glove on us because it certainly will. And it's not that at times we might not find ourselves feeling that we're against the ropes. But even though that is our experience, we can know. Death, you are going to be defeated. I'm going to dance on your grave. You're going to lose. You're going to lose big. That all you got? Don't you know that if I die, yet shall I live? We defeat death like Jesus from the other side. That's all death can do. It can do something to our bodies, and then we will 
one day be raised and transformed and death will no, be no more. Then we will say those words most fully and most f full of the joy. Oh, death, where is your sin? Oh, death, where is your victory? It's gone. It's gone. We can be confused about the when and the how of the truth of Scripture. And my final issue, before I'm going to give you some practical things that we might want to do, the final one is what happens next? You see, there are different philosophies and religions, aren't there, about what happens next. So um, one of the world faiths says this, you go through the door of death, and then you come back in some form to life, and then you go through the door of death, and then you come back, and you do that almost endlessly, until finally, eventually, you go through the door of death, and then you merge into the infinite. That's one faith answer. Secular faith of today says this, you go through the door of death, and there is nothing. You cease to exist. You didn't exist before you were born. You won't exist after you die. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's another faith, the secular faith. But it seems to me that Christians can be vague. They can know they're wrong, but they can be vague about what happens next. So one Christian, more than one Christian tradition, says that when you go through here, if you are an exceptional state, saint, but only if you're an exceptional saint, you go through there and you're in the presence of God immediately. But for mere mortals like us, we will go through a process of purification. Now the problem with that for me is the thief on the cross was told by Jesus today, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, when it says thief, it was a bit more than being a pickpocket. It implies that he was involved in violence and maybe even terrorism. He certainly wasn't an exceptional saint. But he was told today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, most of us, I don't think, are tempted to think that way. But I think that affects more people in our sort of tradition, way of thinking, is that when you go through there, you go to spiritual unconsciousness until Jesus returns. And then you wake up spiritually. And it's certainly true that the Bible talks about death as sleep again and again and again. It's a metaphor. It's a picture. But it is a picture of what death looks like to us who are still living. Dead people look like they're asleep. It is not supposed to be a description of the experience of the dead. Because why would Paul say, for me to die is gain? or that I would prefer to go to be with him. If spiritual sleep was what Paul was anticipating, I cannot see him coming to the conclusion that that was preferable to continued effective ministry. 
That doesn't make sense. And there's other verses that point in this direction. So if you don't mind me being a little bit silly for a moment, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, do you think he was saying, I'm going to go and make up your beds? (laughs) Or when in Hebrews you read, in worship we come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. When you have that picture of heavenly worship, do you think the dead saints are asleep on the back row? Or when in Revelation chapter 6, it says the martyrs cry out, how long, O Lord? Are they speaking in their sleep? Or are they in the conscious presence of their Lord as they await final resurrection? So forgive me for being frivolous, but I thought you might need cheering up at this point. (laughs) For me, the clinching passage, though, is found in 2 Corinthians 5. Where Paul says, knowing that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, in this whole passage, Paul is talking about wanting his resurrection body. But at this point in his argument, He's talking about the difference between what he experiences in life now and what he will experience immediately after death. He says, now I'm at home in the body, but in some sense away from the Lord. But then, when I pass through the door of death, I will be at home with the Lord, but away from the body. And if you wanted a sort of picture of the difference of that, it would be like, I think, maintaining an engagement at long distance so that most of your contact is by email and Skype calls. And you change a long distance engagement with the intimacy of marriage. I'd rather be away from my body and at home with my Lord says Paul. And again, John Piper says, we will know a deeper intimacy, a greater at-homeness than anything we can know in this life. And Paul concludes this section of his argument, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Now I know babies please their parents by sleeping. I don't see how sleeping saints can make it their aim to, to please their Lord. I think they need to be awake in his presence to do that. So I'm convinced that when we die, you and I will not be unconscious till Christ returns, but we will be ushered into his presence. We go through the door not to sleep, but to the wonder of wonders, to see him to be with him, to be made like him. So I want to finish with what I call top tips, but really what I've got is one big idea and then some ideas to unpack it. 
and the big idea is that we need a new course. I think we should call it the Omega course. I don't know where I got that idea from, but it's an Omega course. We have courses to prepare for childbirth, courses to prepare you to be a parent, courses to help you become a Christian. So why not a course to prepare you for dying? We all need to learn the facts of life. I think we all need to learn the facts of death. I know it sounds a bit weird, but you're only going to do this once. <laughs> Don't you want to do it well? Paul says that death is the last enemy, and it will certainly be our last battle, our last chance to stand firm in Christ, our last chance to exercise faith, our last chance to witness to his amazing grace. And is it interesting that a hardened centurion soldier in charge of putting Jesus to death made the statement, this is the Son of God, not because of a miracle, but because of the way he died. And maybe we could be like Samson, that we would make an even greater contribution to the advance of the kingdom in our dying than in our living. Because we have learnt to die well. And there's a host of material from yesteryear that we need to dust down and polish that we could use. So the Puritans, the word and spirit people of the 16th and 17th century wrote lots on death and dying and how to die well. Don't tell anybody. They got most of their pastoral wisdom from the Catholics. Not so much of their theology, but pastoral wisdom they got from the Catholics. And uh, one of the great poets of the Puritan era was John Donne. Um, you know, the one who said... Uh, you know, don't ask for whom the bell tolls, because it tolls for you. Well, he wrote and preached a lot on death and dying. Another famous poem of his was this. Well, it starts like this. Death, be not proud. And ends, death, thou shalt die. There's a whole range of material for us to sort of resurrect and refresh that we can build our course on. The aim of the course, I think, well, to help people make that one of their life goals to die well. I've been thinking about dying well for a long time. You do it more often as you get older, but I became a Christian when I was 15, and very soon after that, I read a book by John White called The Fight. And the final chapter, I think it might be the final section of the final chapter. He talks on this theme. And it was one of those things I thought, that's right. If this is true, of all people, we should be able to die well, and I would like to do that. But I also acknowledged that I had some progress to make before I could do that. And I'm still trying to make that progress. But I have found that the more I think and pray and consider this issue, Life becomes more precious. I'm more thankful. I appreciate it more when I know that this life ends 
and the best is yet to come, and I want to die well. I think the first thing you'd have to do on this course, though, was help people face their fears. When I first started like, regularly flying, I used to say to people, oh, I'm not afraid of flying. Uh, but I noticed this pattern. Whenever I got to the airport, I had a tense, nervous headache. And I had to realize, actually, although not very conscious of it, somewhere deep down, I was afraid of flying. I mean, those things are heavy. I mean, they're really, really heavy. I mean, if you get a bit nervous when somebody else is driving and not you, your car, well, on a plane, you haven't got a chance of flying it. And there's lots of, I mean, just they're heavy. I don't get a headache anymore, but the only way I got to that was to face my fear, to acknowledge it. And then, this is what I often do. I put on my seatbelt, I look around and think, this is heavy. <laughs> and then I say, Lord, if this is my last day, if this should crash, thank you for this life. Thank you for Val and the girls. Thank you for my friends and family. I give them into your hands and I trust my life to you. But if it's all right with you, I wouldn't mind getting there safely. <laughs> of course, I don't say that out loud. <laughs> but you have to face your fears, and church should be, and the Omer course would have to be the safest place for people to share their deepest fears and their darkest moments. Otherwise, people will feel left isolated and vulnerable as they face the last battle. We will lock people in to emotional, solitary confinement unless we say it's okay for you to find this battle and we will help you with it. Face fears. I think the other thing we can help people with and we can learn to do is to learn from all the little deaths that we go through in this life. Every goodbye is a little death. Every time we move to a different area, every time we change our jobs, every disappointment, the end of relationship, every change, especially when it's not of our choosing but of somebody else's choosing, or the pressure of circumstances, is a little death. Paul said, he learned. He learned to be content. And I think he shows us how we can learn to be at peace, to be content, even as we face death. At the end of his letter to the Philippians, Paul gives what I call his prescription for peace. In summary, he says, Knowing the Lord is at hand, do not be anxious about anything, even death. Do not be anxious about anything. Pray with thanksgiving. Fix your mind on whatever is true and noble and right and pure, whatever is lovely, lovely and admirable. Think about these things. And then, in obedient faith, trust what you have been taught and do what's been modeled to you, and then you will know peace. So in summary, to die well, I think we need to learn every time we have a little death, to do it better. And we do it better by appreciating the good in the present, 
by being thankful, by being generous, by sharing our concerns, striving to live in the light of God's goodness rather than focusing on negative circumstances. Each time we do that, we are developing the habits that will enable us to confidently take the final steps to the door of wonder. One of the most significant things you can do is to walk with others as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I think there's little that is more precious than supporting people who are dying or who are grieving. And it should be a matter of enormous pride that it was a Christian, Dame Cecily Saunders, who pioneered the modern hospice movement. And out of that movement, it has reawakened the skills and the ways we can help people as they come to the end of their life. So that even ordinary mortals like this, us, can help. You have to give people this place of safety where they can share whatever's going on, their fears, their worries. We help them by telling them how much we love them. Not just saying, well, they know. Tell them how proud you are of them. The memories that you treasure. The kindnesses that you've appreciated. Remind them of the promises that God has made and that he is always with them. But you know, the best thing you can do is simply be with the person that is grieving or dying. Sheer presence has so much more power than often our words. And you will remember that Jesus, as he was preparing to die, not only wanted friends to pray for him, but he wanted three friends to be with him. And on the last stage of his journey, he had Simon Cyrene helping carry the heavy load. Maybe there's someone in your life that you could be a Simon to. You could help them carry the load as they walk their own hill to their place of death. It will bless them. It will change you. It will help you to die well. Now, I'm sure there's lots more that could be said, but I've got one final suggestion for an element of the Omega course. And... Um, it's a phrase from Don Carson, my great hero. Um, if anyone can mentor you by their writing rather than by their presence, then Don Carson has been my theological mentor. And uh, usually on training, when I mention his name, I say, may he be blessed. Uh, <laughs> but he said, we need to help people develop a homesickness for heaven. To develop a homesickness for heaven. And how do you do that? Well, Jesus said, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, your heart will be. The more you invest in heaven, the more your heart's there, the more you long for it, the more homesick you will want to be there. It's um, interesting, in the medieval Middle Ages, there was a play called Everyman, which I think we could adapt if we just need to tweak it a little bit. 
The, the play of every man that used to go around the country into towns and villages was this. Every man is a character. And one day the angel of death comes to him and says, it's your time. And every man says, well, can I have a little bit longer? He tries to negotiate. The angel of death says, no. He says, well, could, I, could someone come with me? Angel of death says, yes, if you can find anyone to go with you, they can come with you. So he goes and asks all his friends and family, no one's available. <laughs> then he goes to ask different characters. He asks worldly goods, beauty, strength, and knowledge. None of them. And when he's just about given up hope, one character says he's willing and available. It's the character of good deeds. Now, the, in the play, as untweaked, it is really saying, you can take nothing with you that you have received. The only thing you can take with you is what you have given, which is great, but not quite what Jesus says. Jesus says, you don't take it with you, you deposit before you. You can invest in heaven now by every act of love prompted by faith. You are investing in heaven, and it makes your heart long for heaven more. Carson concludes his comments on this by saying, the best way of developing homesickness for heaven is to live in the conscious presence of God here. The more we do that, the easier it is to anticipate the unqualified delight we will experience in God's presence then then faith will be replaced by sight. Now we have a foretaste, then we have the feast. We need to develop a homesickness for heaven. There you have it. That's my initial draft of the Omega course. Make it a life goal to die well. You need to face your fear. We need to learn from our little deaths. We can walk with others through the valley and we can develop a homesickness for heaven. I'm sure there's more wisdom that you could help me with. So if you've got some ideas about that, find a way of contacting me, and I will add it and make my talk even longer. <laughs> but to close, thanks for coming, and thanks for staying. In a few moments, we're going to have a song uh, really to close with, and I want to give you an opportunity to Dwell in God's presence. Allow him to speak to you and give you a chance to speak to him. As the singers sing, please remain seated. Let them minister to us in that time. But in drawing to a conclusion, I'm convinced that each one of us knows that if we would waver or stumble on the way to the door, our Lord will come and pick us up and carry us. But I'm sure we don't want to be carried. We want to be walked through, battle-worn, bloodied, bruised, but victorious in the last battle. Victorious in his strength. And we can do that when we make it our aim to die well. We do that when we remember, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. And there is joy unspeakable waiting for us as we pass through that door. And though in this body we groan, 
and outwardly we are wasting away. We are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory so that whatever we have endured here will then seem like a momentary slight affliction. For then we shall see him as he is and be transformed to be like him. There will never be any more pain for us to experience, nor sin will never tempt us. Never again will we let him or others down. Brothers and sisters, a day coming when this life will end for each one of us, when the things of earth will grow strangely dim and we will be lost in wonder, love, and praise. There's the day when he returns or calls us home. But till that, in that day, we can stand in the strength of Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are stilled, when striving cease My comforter, my all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand Still of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin. Was laid here in the death of Christ. I of the world by darkness slain then bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave he
Of course, there's one final thing to say that having passed through the door of death, that's not the end because the day comes when the door opens again and we enter into this world transformed to a new creation. And heaven will come to be on the transformed earth and we will live in our transformed resurrection body. And so the early Christians prayed, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Absolutely amazing, uh, everybody. Uh, thank you so much, Mick. And uh, in a way, you need to know that it was a preach of a mini death because Mick is handing over the director of training role, which he has done so well. And uh, very moving to listen to that and to all of us to reflect, we will have to go through that door. And on an offering night as well, even what Mick was saying about we are sending ahead an eternal inheritance for ourselves in our giving on a gift day. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful reminder this message should be heard again and again. We should listen and remind ourselves frequently that our life is very short. Use worldly wealth to, to, to gain friends so that you, when you enter in, you may be welcomed into eternal dwellings. There are so many scriptures that keep reminding us our life goes past in a moment, but there is eternal significance. So thank you, Mick, for serving us so magnificently. Thank you so much for being part of it. Tonight, we've got Annie McCulloch on this platform. It will be a very challenging message as he illuminates God's heart for the nations. We want as many people on that final day into those eternal dwellings. And it's also our offering night so come full of faith. We're going to see something absolutely amazing tonight together. And God bless you as you go now. Have a great afternoon, seminars, lunch, whatever you're doing. God bless you. Thank you for being here. <laughs>